All right, everyone. Today we have a very special guest joining us. He is a world-renowned orthopedic surgeon specializing in cosmetic limb lengthening and is the founder of the Limb Plastics Institute in Las Vegas, Nevada. Patients from around the world come to visit him for his prodigious talent and expertise using the most innovative technology and advanced surgical techniques on the market. You may have found him recently featured on the Business Insider, Yahoo News, Inside Edition, and more. I'm excited to have him as a feature on my newest Surgeon Spotlight series. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Kevin Debbie Prashad. Hey, Dr. D, how are you doing today? Good. How are you? Thank you for having me on. Thank you for having this kind of blog and this type of story. I think it's very empowering for patients. So I yeah, appreciate it. Definitely, definitely. Now, Dr. D, your medical achievements are second to none. I mean, you've earned your medical and master's degree at McGill University. You did your orthopedic residency at McMaster University. You had fellowships at Harvard and even the Paley Orthopedic and Spine Institute after the legend himself, Dr. George Paley. I mean, alongside those stellar qualifications, you've also been involved in selfless humanitarian mission trips to help you know, others in need, showing just how passionate you are for the orthopedic medicine. So I think that is just amazing. So I commend you for that. Now, with all of those, you know, that rap sheet there, I got to know where it all started. So if you, if you don't mind, give me a brief background on what drew you from typical orthopedics to the world of limb lengthening. So, you know, I think even from my early days, I was always uh, very interested in orthopedics and particularly distraction osteogenesis. Um, actually, about, probably about 17 years ago, um, maybe 17, 18 years ago when I was a med student, I did a, felt, I did a rotation in Vancouver with Ken Brown, who's a very well-known pediatric orthopedic surgeon uh, there. Um, and I remember uh, seeing a tibial lengthening case uh, with a frame that was done for a congenital deformity. And I was with the fellow and we were looking at this um, sort of new two inches of tibia being built. And I thought to myself, you know, this is like magic. Um, you know, I've never seen anything involved the miracles of medicine that we have of modern medicine, surgeries, medicine, medications, and pathologies themselves. I've never seen anything so amazing being able to change structures so, you know, so permanently. And uh, ever since that day, I knew that I had to be involved with distraction osteogenesis. I, I had a fascination, which grew into a passion to bridge orthopedics and eventually even, you know, looking at limb deformity and limb lengthening, particularly distraction osteogenesis as a, as a, as a focal point of my career. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So kind of like, I guess the body's uh, ability to kind of heal itself is just kind of fascinating you, which it does me too. And I think that's really why I wanted to kind of like touch base with you because of, you know, your fascination with that. So, um, all right. So the Limb Plastic Institute, it focuses exclusively on cosmetic limb lengthening. Uh, when did you open the doors and what inspired you to do so? So you kind of went on the, the um, explanation of what inspired you about limb lengthening. What, why did you choose just cosmetic limb lengthening? So still a lot of my practice revolves around traumatic injuries and using the same type of technology and surgical techniques to correct, you know, traumatic deformities, even some congenital work. Um, you know, so I still do a lot of that. And that primarily still is a lot of the work that I do, uh, you know, throughout the year. Um, but the reason, um, you know, the Limb Plastic Institute, I started that after being in Vegas for some time, um, because I felt those patients were a bit different uh, than the patients that are, have traumatic pathologies and have maybe pathology related to idiopathic conditions or cancer or congenital reasons. Um, you know, they, they are a little bit more, they're certainly 
were very different uh, in what they demanded and what they also expected from a cosmetic type procedure. You know, when you think of a cosmetic procedure, you're not thinking about someone, you know, who might have rolled over in a car and has a, an open fracture or something like that or some, you know, significant injury. I think the cosmetic patient who's putting a lot of money into this, putting a lot of effort into this, they're putting a lot of, uh, they're putting themselves on hold or their life on hold for some time. They're really sacrificing a lot. And I think that the reason I built them Plastic Institute, part of the reason was to really kind of cater to that. I understand how much they're putting towards that. And I really want them to have an experience that like they feel very comfortable and they really, you know, they're putting out all this money towards a procedure and I really want them to feel that they're really getting something out of it. And they have really, you know, top notch type of connection with the, with the practice and um, are able to be, you know, have people check up on them and really try to cater to their needs more uh, than, you know, a typical patient. Amazing. Amazing. I love that. Um, and how many procedures would you say that you've done since you opened the One Classics Institute? But when we opened the Blast Institute, um, that's when we started using the stride implant. I was fortunate enough to be the second surgeon, I think, in the world to ever put one in uh, about two years ago, or a little over mm -hmm. two years ago. We're currently doing about four to six cosmetic cases a month. Wow. Uh, so okay. That's happening a month. So we've probably done close to whatever that would be, but we're doing about four to six a month. Mm -hmm. Um, we get, you know, since the beginning of the year, we've been fortunate with a lot of media, uh, you know, uh, outlets uh, picking up, uh, doing stories on us, and that sort of stuff. We, we have, we've had about 150, I think, uh, virtual consultations or in-person consultations or requests for them since this year. And so that's only been about four months or so. Wow. That's amazing. So we've certainly ramped up, I think, in volume very quickly. Um, um, so, you know, I think we're very fortunate to have that. <laughs> Definitely. And uh, what would you say that from your patients' results that they've achieved, what do you think that are some of the life-changing benefits that they get uh, after limb lengthening with you? Um, when looking at the, you know, I mean, if you're looking at the non-cosmetic, it's, you know, return to function, potentially that sort of stuff with a limb discrepancy or, you know, traumatic injury, that sort of stuff. From the cosmetic perspective, you know, you certainly get taller. I mean, that's, the, that's kind of the end. <laughs> simplistic end result. Um, what that translates to, I think, is, um, you know, potentially, you know, more self-confidence, uh, more of seeing yourself in a different light, um, you know, and, you know, sometimes physical attributes that, you know, will change in that patient that make them more of doing something. So, you know, those tend to be um, what I see patients, you know, see from, from this type of procedure. And that's part of the reason I even took on cosmetic lengthening. You know, I, I could do just as well not doing cosmetic lengthening, in some cases, potentially better uh, uh, with certain types of surgeries. Uh, but... You know, the gratification that these patients have uh, when you see them come back and they might have started out shorter than you and they might have started out your height and they come in and they're towering over you. Uh, to be honest, it is probably by far one of the most uh, rewarding surgeries that I do uh, when it comes to results. I mean, seeing people be able to do that and seeing their smile on their face when they're standing next to me and when they've got their, their height and their length or we take a picture or something like that uh, or they get their height measured, um, I mean, it's really something. I mean, it really is. I mean, I don't know how to, and that's why we do what we do, right? I mean, we do it because that ability to make, do something for patients that make them happy, do something for someone else to make them happy. And when you get that, that's, that's the fulfillment right there. Wow. I definitely feel your vibe from your, from your passion for limb lengthening right there. Cause um, it's true that, you know, from my YouTube and my blog and what I do, all the content that I put out, I hear so many different stories about how, you know, bad a lot of these people feel that if they just were a few inches taller, they'd feel amazing and they would just do so much better. And you coming in with a service like cosmetic limb lengthening can solve that pain that they have is a truly amazing gift. So that is really, really cool. Um, what do you say that is the average height of the typical patient that comes in uh, and, you know, to get limb lengthening done? Yeah, I would say that, um, I mean, generally it, 
you know, they're generally below average. I mean, um, you know, we generally do more male patients, though, however, we've gotten a lot more female patients, I would say, lately. Um, and um, so, you know, they're generally below average for a male. You know, they might be sort of below 5'10", but they'll probably be there sometimes 5'2", 5'3". I don't really think there's a, there's a number uh, mm-hmm. in some ways. I mean, I would say that 90% of them plus are certainly well below uh, average height uh, for their, you know, for their sex. Uh, but, uh, you know, some of them may be in around that range, but are interested in getting to that six foot mark potentially. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I spend a lot of time with patients. They, they don't get approved for surgery unless I spend a lot of time with them. Mm-hmm. Just want to offer, you know, video. I've always offered, even before this COVID-19 issue, um, mm-hmm. I've always offered patients before they wasted money coming to see me in Las Vegas to uh, do a video type consult. I can talk to them and see what their goals are, what their expectations are like. Uh, you know, are these you know, are these reasonable expectations um, to kind of go through? And why is it that you're doing this? And why do you want to pursue this? And do you understand what it entails? So, you know, those things are very important, I think, for me to move forward and say, yeah, well, we can go ahead and do this. So, so there are patients that might be slightly above average or or around the average that may want to do it, but they do really have, I think, you know, sincere reasons of wanting, wanting to do this, and I think it does seem reasonable in those, in those circumstances. Right. And I think the term that your mentor, Dr. Paley, uses is uh, hype dysphoria. And uh, that can kind of be different for a lot of different people. Like no one can say, oh, you're 5'7 and you want to be 5'10. That's perfect. But then if somebody who's 5'10 wants to get to six foot, we can't, you know, frown on that at all. Everybody has their own perspective of how they see themselves. Oh, you know, a little bit on hype dysphoria. I, I know Dror, um, you know, I know very well and talk to you once in a while. And- in one of his partners room. They came to my clinic just a few weeks ago. Oh, really? Uh, one of his partners came to visit me. But, okay. uh, but you know, I actually don't really like that term. I don't like the word. Uh, I don't like that term very much. Okay. Uh, I know that they use it a lot. The reason is I don't think someone should be labeled with a psychiatric or a psychological problem because they want to be taller. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if someone dyes their hair because uh, they don't want to show that they have gray hair or someone gets breast augmentation or rhinoplasty or someone, you know, does something else that makes them feel better about themselves. I, I, you know, it, it, I, it just, I feel like I don't think that should be labeled into some sort of psychological disorder, in which case you then do a surgery to correct that psychological order. Mm-hmm. disorder you know i don't think about it as my, as my patients you know when i see my patients you know they did a they did an article on me in, in the mirror in the uk which kind of went all over the world with that with that article and i interviewed for that article um uh, journal view and one of the first things they said in the article was you know men was poor self-confidence mm-hmm. and it really made me kind of irate in some ways because because I, I, you know I, I my patients are not that way i'm mean, mm-hmm. my uh you know some of my patients are so successful mm-hmm. uh, I've done surgeons, I've done plastic surgeons, I've done uh, lawyers, venture capitalists, I've done people that I wish I had their job or their success there. <laughs> and to think that these people are coming to see me because they don't have enough self-confidence, I really don't think that's what it is. I think, you know, there are a lot of patients who come in that think, hey, I'd love to be a little bit taller. I think it would give me that additional edge. I think it would add to what I already have. And I think it would give me a little bit more. So, I, you know, when, when people interview me for these you know, TV shows and radio shows and that sort of stuff, you know, they, they have this idea of people going through this and it's all these unusual people. I don't think they're unusual. There's some of my colleagues who I've done the surgery on who I see on a day-to-day basis and I think they're really people. And uh, I don't think that it's unusual to want to do that. Again, I don't think it's unusual for someone to change their gender if they want to be a you know, transgender, change their sexual orientation. I don't think it's unusual, uh, you know, to get some other cosmetic procedure potentially to augment the way you feel about yourself potentially. It doesn't mean that I think that you're, you know, in a terrible place prior to doing doing the surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just little things like that, including the term, you know, hypersphoria, which I think that, you know, really labels patients as, 
having some kind of disorder almost, which yeah. I don't think is the case. I mean, I think these patients are just as happy without the surgery, but I think it just adds to who they are when they have the surgery and they get the results. Wow. That is, a, yeah, that's an amazing uh, perspective. I never actually thought about it like that, but I kind of uh, agree with everything you said. I just, I guess I just use the term because it's been thrown around so much, but um, now that you put in that perspective, I think that's really good because putting a term on something, it's just like, that's what you are, but everybody's individual and you can't put a term on that. No, I agree with that. I mean, I don't think you have a problem because you want to be taller. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, and they make, they make rap songs about it, right? I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a little bit taller. Yeah, I mean, me too. It's not, something, it's not something that, you know, I wish I had more money. Like, I mean, it, <laughs> there's not a condition necessarily associated with that. I mean, it's just you may attribute potentially something to that and to having that attribute and you wish to pursue that. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that you know, and that's part of the reason I created the Lymphastics Institute. I feel that a lot of patients who get this procedure done want to hide in the dark. And I'm like, I'm not about that. I'm not about hiding in the dark and pretending and, and, and you know, I'm about being transparent. Mm -hmm. Both transparent what we do. You know, I've had people come film me in the OR. We did a piece on, um, on, on um, what was that thing we did? The, um, uh, we did a couple of TV, TV shows, uh, like Inside Audition, that sort of stuff. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. I want them to walk through the footsteps of my patients and see okay. what they do. And I want it to be transparent. I don't want the world to look at us and say, what are you doing? And I'm, mm -hmm. uh, I want to show them what we're doing. And I want them to see, and I want them to look at the data and look at the factual results and see, is this something worth doing? And that's the only reason I do it, because I already know what the results are like. And I want them to also know that. So that patients don't feel ashamed that they're doing this. That's the worst feeling. Yeah. I don't want to for someone and someone to hide in the closet yeah. after they I want them to feel proud they did it. They don't have to go and advertise necessarily, but I've, you know, I've been very fortunate with having a lot of vocal patients who have been able to on TV. I think one of the only patients I've ever seen who had cosmetic limb like thing, you know, did a bunch of local TV shows here and she did another thing from Invasive as well. I think she's one of the only patients uh, who's done cosmetic limb like or at least the first patient mm -hmm. who's shown her face and reveals her identity <laughs> and and I've had multiple patients that follow suit. Um, and so I think that's very important because then it becomes less mysterious, it becomes less dangerous, it becomes less, you know, it becomes much more transparent. And it also becomes less, you know, I think of an unusual procedure that someone is doing. And that it makes the patient who's even going to do it feel more comfortable with doing it. And I think that's the key. Uh, I mean, I, I think the key is to really go out there and step out of the arena and say, hey, this is what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. And how do we get there in a safe way? How do we get there in a safe way mm -hmm. and, and show patients what we can do or patients who might benefit from the surgery and, you know, what it entails and be very transparent about that. It's not yeah. about hiding things in the closet. It's about being openly open and transparent about it. And that, I think, is why, you know, part of the, a big reason why the Implastic Institute even exists. Yeah, I think I think you're going to draw a lot of interest with your statement that you just made with uh, what you just said because a lot of people do feel like this is like something to look be looked down upon or a stigma. But uh, that's why I kind of went public with this and being a mediator of all this re um, information to help publicize this procedure. You know, even though I was a limb link discrepancy patient, I still feel that for a lot of people because you know it's the surgery is the same. It's although my my condition was different, um, I still feel they're. I'm sympathetic with them. So I definitely agree with what you said. Very, very cool. Um, so I was looking at your techniques and it said that you use a minimally invasive technique. Uh, and when you use that with ter terms like surgery, that just sounds so, you know, bizarre, but uh, perhaps you can elaborate on that a little bit. I mean, I, I think it's just, you know, being very careful with the soft tissues when you dissect. I mean, I have some little models here. Yeah. Little, yeah. You know, and, and, you know, you've had, this is a stride nail and I've got some examples here, but you know, I should be very delicate when doing the surgery. My patients usually stay about two days in hospital. 
So two nights overnight. Um, I've never had a transfusion in all the cases I've ever done. Never once in a bilateral. Wow, amazing. Uh, generally, my hemoglobin drop is about two to three, and that's because of meticulous dissection and putting them in. I use very small incisions, as you can look at any of my post-op patients. I don't mm-hmm. know that sort of stuff, but um, you know, you can look at look at that, and I think it's being very delicate with soft tissues because you're trying to make this patient who's already perfect, mm-hmm. and trying to keep them at that level right. with minimizing any soft tissue dissection between the muscles that you're going through, yeah. and very gentle with that stuff, so that at the end yeah. you've been able to separate that bone and do an osteotomy, place this rod uh, without disturbing anything around it as much as possible. Okay? Right. And in doing so, you know, I think we've been very successful in, in getting very good results and getting patients up faster and getting patients moving faster, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, off any kind of walking aid, usually by two weeks um, and, wow. and progressing very quickly. And I want them to go back to work. I want them to go back and do things so that the, the strain of going through this procedure becomes more normal. I got it. Very cool. That's a really, really interesting point you brought up there. Now, you said that they stay in the, uh, the Lymphastics Institute for two days after the surgery. How long does your surgery usually take to do, um, uh, you know, on average for a patient? Yeah, so generally about, for, to do both femurs, it takes me about an hour and 20 minutes. Amazing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It would probably take me a little longer because it requires a little bit more work, but probably close to, um, I don't know, maybe t- two hours tops probably. That's crazy. Amazing. You're a workhorse. Very cool. Speed is the speed demon there. Um, okay. So you said you use the precise stride now. That's one of the latest cutting edge technologies for limb lengthening. Um, what's so special about this? And you said that it, you want them to start walking by we- uh, two weeks. Um, is it just because it's weight bearing or is there other, you know, features that inter- um, intrigue you? Well, I think mobility is very important. To okay. So I, I don't get them, like in that patient that they did that inside addition piece, that video of him walking is actually four hours after surgery, not 24 hours after Whoa. surgery. You are expected to at least stand up and walk the day of surgery. In mm-hmm. um, and I expect you to walk pretty reasonably with a walker and get around the ward and that sort of stuff during the two days that you're an inpatient. Mm-hmm. Uh, by two weeks, I'm expecting you to complete, like start losing any walking aid because that's my life would be Las Vegas right. to navigate the airport and that sort of stuff and you know return back to more normal activities by three or four weeks mm-hmm. like you know in, in examples of patients like you know surgeons for instance I've done quite a few surgeons um, uh, one of the past surgeons I'm thinking of you know he went back to doing 12 hour surgery days at least three or four weeks after surgery oh my God. and stuff like that so so uh, um, I mean I want them to, you know, progress, uh, do well. I want them to to be mobile. I want them to be weight bearing. I want them to return back to driving and doing those types of activities. Get get off any pain medications as soon as possible. And I think, you know, when, when the surgeon has that expectation, the practice has that expectation, you you instill that expectation onto the patient as well. It, it goes both ways, I think. Right. And, and we work together to try to get the patient moving as much as possible, get them going, um, and uh, you know, get them really progressed uh, overall. But uh, you know, I think it does work well. I think with the stride implant uh, for an FDA-approved uh, implant, it's certainly a game changer because most pe- people meet the uh, weight restrictions for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're able to weight bear right away, so I don't usually you know, have no restrictions from that perspective. They're able to go back to work very soon after the procedure, uh, two to three weeks, depending on what they do. They can't do any strenuous you know, activities like uh, you know, any laborist type job, but any other type of work they would be able to do. Um, so there's some restrictions overall, but you know, I think it, it makes a huge difference. I think people heal faster, they get back to walking faster, they look more normal by the, while they're lengthening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also think that it makes the regenerate, which is the new bone that's being formed, mm-hmm. Formed here, it makes it more robust when you're able to do fully weight bearing. You know, bone is a you know biomechanical type structure. It's a it's a very specific type of tissue. Right. Mechanical stimulus, as you probably know, you kind yes. of go a little bit, and 
being up and walking actually stimulates that regenerative to be more robust. And I've certainly seen that the regenerative compared to the older technology, like with just the general precise, mm -hmm. the regenerative seems to be stronger. They seem to heal faster. They seem to consolidate faster. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I think patients certainly do a lot better with this implant than they did with precise. And I've had the opportunity. You know, I, I was there when you know I was a paleo when when precise first came out, and you know I was able to see all the generations a bit. I have a very close association with the company. I, you know, I just talked to them like day ago or something like that. I talked to them on a weekly basis. So you know. You know, I was able to see all those sort of progressions, and certainly with Stride, um, I think there's been a, it, certainly a game changer. I think when it comes to that, and I think it makes the concept of cosmetic limiting um, much more palatable for patients. Amazing. So obviously, there have been major advancements and strides in the technological advancements. Um, would you know? You say you just spoke with Novasive the other day. Do you know of any improvements to the Stride nail coming out? So when the nail first came out, actually, as I mentioned, I was the second surgeon, I think, to use it in the world. I think mm -hmm. Pia and I were the first two to be able to uh, use the implant, I think, even for the first year. I don't think any other surgeon used it except for the two of us, mm -hmm. just because of our experience level. Um, and one thing we found is that there were some issues with placing these distal locking screws that are you know, at the bottom of the nail. Mm -hmm. There was uh, difficulty both by his group as well as my group in doing that. And so we actually had to do a little modification. They did do some changing of the drill bit itself and how we put those screws in. Okay. And, perfectly uh, so the first thing we put in we had a little bit of struggle uh, i think they had a little bit of struggle as well in florida and now we're uh, certainly uh, i think it goes much more smoothly in addition to that uh changes yes there are some stuff on the horizon um for instance there is a transport nail that they're working on that's currently being used for trauma so it's mm -hmm. not cosmetically maintaining but it's for people with um bone defects for instance let's say you got into a car accident you lost part of your leg you can now use this technology potentially to do a bone transport type uh procedure in addition to that, that then caused the ERC device, which is the external remote control, which we currently have, which is the generation three ERC device, which I'm not sure which one you were able to use when you had the procedure done, but mm -hmm. um, that generation uh, technology allows for six minutes for one millimeter. Wow. And, and that's the, the newest one. I don't know which one you had. It used to be seven minutes before, but anyways, the newest seven minutes, one. Yeah, that's the one I had. One that's coming out, which may, which has already been released when you're doing bone transport cases, uh, will we'll cut that in half. So oh my gosh. Type 4 uh, ERC device. It looks pretty cool. I think we had taken it on a, a TV show that hasn't aired yet. We were, we were fortunate to be on a talk show a little while ago uh, down in Hollywood and um, it hasn't aired yet, but we did bring it on set. But we didn't actually, I don't think we actually even showed this. I don't think it's going to be on the air, but we did have a generation 4 there to show people. Um, and um, so that will be the newest up and coming thing in the next year. So it will cut your lengthening time by, you know, half. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. It's like you have to listen to the machine on your leg. It's, it speeds yeah, it up. I feel like it's tedious, you know. Like even when I'm in the operating room and I'm using it, I'm thinking this is the longest six minutes I've had. <laughs> uh, the longest part of the procedure, to be honest, is the lengthening time. Yeah, I, I can attest to that. So very cool. All right, uh, Dr. D, so um, – for people, like you, you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, you said that the procedure is extremely expensive. Um, how much does it cost at the Limb Plastics Institute? Uh, so our starting rate is in the range of, uh, for femoral, I think, which is a little bit cheaper uh, just because of the you know, implants and timing and that sort of stuff. Uh, but it probably starts around 75000 Okay. Uh, for the procedure uh, to be done. So it's around that range. And that mm -hmm. includes everything, the surgical costs, the two days in the hospital, um, you know, the therapy while you're here in Vegas, um, progression, that sort of stuff. And I think we give a very concierge type, um, you know, approach to it. Uh, you're within, you know, 30 seconds, no matter where you are from me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, patients will text my office staff who I think, you know, talk to them on a daily basis if there's any issues when they go home. And, you know, within, you know, 30 seconds I hear about it. And 
and I know what to do and that sort of stuff. So, and we said, you know, make sure to have all that in place, but that's, uh, you know, that's to the general cost of it. Okay. And uh, do you offer any payment options for people who may want to get this done, but just don't have all the finance all set and ready to go? That's a common question. You know, we get a lot of inquiries about that. We don't have a payment option, at least at this point. Uh, we have talked to uh, Nuvasiv uh, potentially about looking at uh, trying to separate the most expensive part of the procedure, which is not anything to do with me. <laughs> it has to do with the implant itself. The implant itself is extremely expensive, and that's more than half the cost of it, plus the hospital stay, anesthesia, all that sort of stuff. So, um, but... Um, you know, potentially looking at if there was a way to finance that component of it. Uh, that isn't, hasn't really gone much except for that conversation. Um, but, you know, it's, you know, maybe potentially down the pipeline. Um, other than that, we do have some finance options um, on, on some uh, web-based um, like SoFi and Lightstream, which I think are both, you know, good companies. Mm -hmm. uh, looking at options for, um, you know, loans with low interest payments and that sort of stuff uh, for patients. Okay. Some, of us, some of our patients have used it. Very cool. Um, and I always get this question from a lot of different people who, you know, watch my videos and read my blogs. It says, um, what, height, what height can patients gain safely or does it depend on like the, the set of bones that they're getting lengthened or their age or what kind of factors play into, you know, the height lengths that you can lengthen? Um, yeah, you know, I think all those things play into effect a little bit. I mean, my oldest patient, um, he was actually a venture capitalist and a lawyer. Um, <laughs> Five years old. Uh, he did very well. He says he's going to come back and get his tibia done, but uh, he did extremely well. Um, and so, you know, age may play some factors, medical conditions, that sort of stuff. I certainly look at all those things and want to have a long discussion with you before we go and move forward. Um, overall, I would think, um, and, and it depends on what you want to achieve, also. That, that's the other part I would say. Um, because I think the more you do, the more that there can be some repercussion to it, uh, i.e., you know, risks to complications, risks to potentially the the end result, functional capacity, that sort of stuff, uh, especially when it comes to high level sports and that, that sort of thing. So, you know, but I think if you're looking at just general numbers, I would say safely in, in the femur, I think you can get the full length, which is about, you know, 3.15 uh, inches or so, uh, you know, nail. And the tibia, you know, I think it's really hard to achieve that uh, with one straight lengthening. Uh, I think that number probably safely is closer to 5.5 to six centimeters, okay. uh, one straight lengthening. Um, you know, to get a sort of reasonable result, I think, in that. So if you sort of add those two up, I think that's a reasonable approach to it. Okay, very cool. And obviously, this uh, if they get a set of bones lengthened, it could change their limb length proportions a little bit. Um, do you ever discuss this with your patients ahead of time to, so they can know what to expect? Or Yeah, so, the, I mean, we uh, the question comes up a bit. To be honest, it comes up less after the surgery and yeah. after finished to be honest and it's something i would say i almost never hear afterwards and that's generally my answer when it comes up preoperatively um do patients look at themselves and think that there's some disproportionality i would say that's not very common um mm -hmm. to say. because you know proportions are very different you know culturally um mm -hmm. uh, looking at different ethnic groups that sort of stuff looking at body builds are very different depending on who yeah. you're looking um and you know having longer lower extremities and that sort of stuff um it's, it's all relative, I think. And also, even if you add three inches, let's say, collectively, from a percentage perspective, it's not a very large amount that might make a, a very glaring or obvious change overall to, you know, your proportions overall. It's also very difficult to ascertain proportions are when you're looking at a patient, at least when they have clothes on. I mean, where's their belt line? Where's their knee line? It's very difficult when you're looking at someone when they're walking around. So that doesn't seem to be something that I, I see patients really complaining of or okay. knowing after the event in addition to that you know i tell patients is that something you're looking for is important to you i mean the benefit of having stride is i expect you to be walking pretty darn well by the mm -hmm. time 
month or six weeks. So look at yourself and see when enough is enough. And the benefit of those procedures is when you stop pushing that button or when you start playing, it stops. It's also bi-directional, so you can reverse the nail. So if you're unhappy at some point, you can actually go back and that sort of stuff. But I would say that probably never happened. I would say that I think the proportionality doesn't seem to play much of a role in it overall. Um, and, and, and what ideal proportions are, I can give you average numbers and people know the average numbers. They measure the you know, femur tibia ratio, the this ratio. To me, and I've looked into this topic very, very extensively, I don't know what the cosmetic ideal is okay. because I don't think it's a scientific answer. Right. And, I, and to be honest, the people who understand that the most are the artists. When you look at like the Da Vinci man, you know, the Da Vinci man, the Da Vinci painted, that's always, always a symbol of, you know, it's a perfectly painted man with his body that's exactly proportioned to be seven head sizes. When you look at artists and the way they paint people, especially back in those days, they use proportions that were extremely important and what they represented. Um, you know, so I think to some degree, what is that cosmetic ratio? Um, I think it's very difficult to know. And I think it's, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder in some ways. Yeah. Um, but I think people who understand it the best are probably not the scientists, I think, that, or the doctors, not sort of stuff in some ways. I think maybe it's potentially the people who look at the body in a different form from a beauty perspective and from an artistic perspective. Um, and, um, you know, you could even argue, you know, look at Barbie, look at Kendall. Yeah. You know, her disproportionately longer than her torso. Oh, so yeah. Is that the cosmetic ideal in mm -hmm. some ways? Is that the cosmetic ideal that your leg should be disproportionately so long relative to your torso? Right. And are we pushing you towards that uh, when doing this procedure? So I, I think it can certainly be looked at in, in many different ways. I mean, I think, um, you know, if it's something that's important to you, it's something that we can certainly discuss. But, uh, but I, I think there's certainly different ways you can look at it, mm -hmm. different ways you can think about it. And, but in the end, I would say most, most of the time in patients, or I would say all the time, that never really seems to come up after anything. Yeah, so it's always a pre-worry. And uh, another pre-worry that I always get from, you know, people is the pain. You know, they always say, is this painful? I always tell them that you're probably going to have some pain right after surgery, but, um, you know, it, can get, it gets more manageable as the weeks go on, go on. And right around two weeks is when I noticed that the pain had a big drop off. Do you see something similar for your patients? Um, so, yeah, so I would say that uh, generally for pain, um, depending on the patient, I have certain patients, like I mentioned, I have one quite a few doctors. There are some doctors that will not take any pain medication mm. right now. So post up at one hour, they look at me and they say, "I'm not taking any pain medication." And they do. The, and I've had patients, and I can I can tell you who they are, but they go through the entire procedure without taking any narcotic. Or anything wow. Um, having said that, I have the opposite. I have patients who want something every day until they <laughs> after that. So, uh, and why that is is difficult to, to tell. I think the surgery looks pretty much routine, I think, overall in what they, we actually do, how patients respond to it, and potentially, you know, what maybe their expectations are, and, and you know, how they deal with pain is very subjective, and I think that plays the biggest role, because the surgeries sometimes are, ident they're, they're essentially identical, I mean, it's like a factory, so it's, and that's what you want, you want something that's identical every time, you mm -hmm. want to be able this. Every hand movement is exactly the same when I do my surgeries. It's the exact same way every single time. No, no variation in what we do. And, um, and that's what you want. You want it to be like that because then you get the same results every time as well. Mm -hmm. So what's important with that is that, you know, I think it is certainly subjective to that patient. Sometimes you can tell preoperatively which are the patients that are going to have a little bit more pain and which guys that are, or people that are a little more stoic potentially and are not going to have as much. But I would say on average, I would say 
you know, certainly the first 24 hours, you might require some IV pain medication. I always ask my patients on post-op day one when I round on them, and I personally round on all my patients, um, you know, what's your pain level today, uh, that morning? And surprisingly, the numbers are pretty small. I would say they, you know, they go anywhere from when I don't move at zero to maybe as high as five, potentially, with having medications on board. You know, generally after the first 24 hours, they're not to any IV pain medication. I take them off that. They're only on orals, and that usually will extend up until about two weeks. Okay. Two weeks, I, I expect... 50%, if not 70% or so of my patients really kind of fall to the wayside in pain medications. Okay. I'm happy to give it to you if you think you need it yes. for therapy, you're getting around, you're traveling, whatever, maybe at night before you get to bed and that sort of stuff. But I do expect that, you know, by that point, you know, you start trickling off that. And certainly by the time I see you, if you're post-op, you know, your follow-up appointment, you really aren't taking very much at all of pain mm-hmm. medication. So that's one of the things I think when people hear about this procedure, even from the general media, which we do you know, quite a bit of that, you know, that's what people think about. They think you're breaking bones and that sort of stuff, and it must be the most painful thing. And, you know, even when I asked my post-op patients, I said it was more painful than you thought it was going to be or less. I think every patient has told me less. Wow. Because I think what they're expecting sounds horrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I tell you I'm going to go, you know, break both your femurs and <laughs> that sort of stuff, I mean, it sounds just atrocious. Um, but, you know, I've I, I often tried to, I was even going to compare some of the VAS scores that we've had in some of the data that we're collecting for our patients to other cosmetic procedures mm-hmm. and to see how much more painful is it really than other cosmetic procedures. Because mm-hmm. in my impression, I do a lot of other surgeries. I don't find this a very painful surgery compared to some of the other surgeries I do. Mm-hmm. I feel that they have a lot more pain and some of my patients say three or four or five days in the hospital, um, you know, from those procedures, which are elective procedures. And yet these patients seem to always routinely, you know, I've never had a patient stay more than two days. I've never had a transfusion. In that data, you know, I'd like to see what that the VAS score, which is a visual analog scale mm-hmm. of what pain is throughout this procedure and compare it to other procedures and see, you know, is it really that different? Right. Is it really that much more different than doing, you know, some sort of soft tissue kind of tuck slash liposuction type thing or any of those, those types of procedures, at least in the short term, I, I think it's probably very similar. Because I talk to my classic surgery colleagues and I say, you know, what do you give patients who have this procedure, this procedure, then it's not that much different than what I give patients for the first two weeks of my, my regimen. So, you know, I, I'd be surprised, uh, well, not surprised, but I, I, I would bet that the, the pain is probably not that much different than some of the other procedures that are offered in the cosmetic world. Mm, interesting. That's really interesting. So there's a lot of uh, translation across the board there with cosmetic procedures. Um, so another question that I always get is about the complications. Obviously, you mentioned that you had no transfusions and you have very few complications, if any, at all. But I want to touch more, more on the long-term uh, potential complications. A lot of people are worried about five years down the line, 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line. I did a v- video recently and I, I kind of extrapolated it that if you know there's a problem that's going to happen, you'll know about it way before then. Uh, but I want to get your, your point of view. So when I tell patients about we're doing this from a cosmetic perspective, and, that, and that's in, in light of also um, who, you know, who's getting it done and how much they're doing, I think that mm-hmm. plays a so if you're doing six inches or you know five and a half inches you know in total or something, um, then I think that's a different patient than the patient who's doing one lengthening, for instance, to gain three inches mm-hmm. or two inches sometimes, which I've had that request. Um, uh, you know, so um, I, and I think that the performance is a little bit different. I will say that from a functional perspective, uh, you know, I think patients do quite well. I think from a, from a general activity standpoint, I've really had patients return back to the normal activities in all of my patients overall. Um, from an athletic performance pr- uh, perspective, um, I always you know, kind of tell patients, look, if you want to do this procedure, but you're willing to accept 10 to 15% decrease in your overall physical high-level activities, mm-hmm. then you know, this is the procedure for you. Because I get tons of people who are athletes who call me or you know, professional athletes. I've, I've actually done a few of these patients, by the way. I've done a Division One athlete and that sort of stuff. But, but 
you know, he was a very particular case. I usually don't do these patients because I, they, what their expectation is, is to gain, you know, all this height and to then return back to this, all this, you know, all these high level performances and their expectations are not in sync with what I can do. Okay. Mm-hmm. I can do a lot, but I, I cannot make it perfect. Right. And what you're asking me is to make you, you know, the next LeBron. And, and I, can't, I, can't, I can't do that because the difference between the guy who's right under that, that player is like a, you know, a nanosecond faster. And you want me to do all these transformations to your body, but yet maintain that or potentially make you better. Having said that, you know, all my patients are back to running, playing sports. Um, you know, I've had patients tell me to get back hundred percent, you know, right. even that gentleman on that um, inside audition piece says a hundred percent. I have a lot of patients tell me there's, they think they're slightly more athletic. I really don't think that's the case. Mm-hmm. I think it's because they probably worked in working out so much while they're doing this procedure that that then translated to them <laughs> physically fit. They also lose a lot of weight also when they do the procedure. So then they have this perception that they're potentially more more active. But I, I've got guys, um, you know, email me all the time. Say, Doc, I'm you know I'm 110. percent I know you told me I was only going to get 89. Percent, but I think percent. Um, you know, I, I take it as a compliment, I guess. But um, overall, I still advertise that I would I would say if you are okay with it, trading the height for a decrease in your athletic abilities, maybe up to 15%, mm-hmm. then this may be a procedure for you. If, if not, and if that's not reasonable for you, then this mm-hmm. is not probably the procedure for you. Very cool. And uh, obviously you, you, you said that physical therapy is included in the fee and everything like that. What type of, um, I guess my question is like, flexibility is super important, but what type of, uh, I guess, process do you have them um, yeah, regimen you have them on to um, see the best recovery and turnout of the surgery. Sure. I mean, if I talk to patients ahead of time, uh, you know, I certainly will give them you know some handouts and that sort of stuff. With these, mm-hmm. some of the therapists have prepared some of those types of documents to kind of get them you know ahead you know ahead of time, so you can prepare six months before you come come to get this procedure done. I think that's just going to help you because right. you know, you've got tight hamstrings and you can't you know you know if your popliteal angle when you kind of go up. Uh, with your, your, you know, your hips at 90 and you kind of extend your knee, mm-hmm. you can't get that fully extended, meaning that, that, that that's a straight angle, like 180 degrees, uh, then, you know, and you're 20 degrees off of that, if you can gain that 20 degrees by the time you come to see me, mm-hmm. then that's 20 degrees that you're ahead of the game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maximizing your overall stretching of those soft tissues, I think is, is vital and very okay. important. Mm-hmm. And that's what we push for also when you're doing the procedure and going through the procedure. And, and it shows me commitment. Because yeah. you and you, I tell you this, and you come back, and uh, it's time for your procedure, and you haven't done anything I've said. <laughs> and I'm going to question: Are you the right patient to even be doing this? Because I don't think you understand. Well, I guess you would understand because you've gone through the procedure in some ways. But you know, to do it bilaterally, you know, it, it really requires the right patient in the sense of like compliance, being very committed, and and you know, it's a journey that we both have to, to venture upon. And, and, and that part is extremely important. I think it's 50% of the surgery, you know, is routine in some ways in, in, in our hands and people have done a lot of these. Uh, but, you know, that component of it, I think, in um, getting the patient to do the work and that sort of stuff, you see it translate. I mean, the patients who are compliant, who, you know, call, calls me every time they take a footstep, you know, who's that kind of patient, uh, who reports back everything to me and brings in their Excel form when they come see me, um, you know, those types of patients, you know, they tend to do extremely well, to be honest. I mean, they sometimes, you know, spend a lot more time in clinic with me, which, you know, uh, you know takes up a little more time, but they tend to do well because they listen, they do more than is expected of them, and those patients, that generally translates to them doing better. Wow. Overall. So for my, my expectation would be to at least do an hour a day of certainly physical therapy. And if you want, I let you go back to the gym. There's certain restrictions I'll put on you, but I can like, I'll let you do weights. I'll let you do, you know, some amount of physical activities. Stationary bike is a great one. Recumbent bike is a great one. Um, you know, I, I want you to do those things. In addition to the therapy you're doing and another hour, if you want to do more than that, then 
all, you know, as much as you can. I think that's only going to make you better. Right. And that's definitely something I implemented, implemented for myself is after physical therapy, I went home, ate, rested, and then I did some more and it helped out tremendously. Um, how long do you usually have them do physical therapy? Because a lot of people, like you said, they're flying to Las Vegas uh, to go to the Limb Classics Institute, get limb length done with you. Um, they stay there for two days. Do they stay at you know, local uh, housing nearby, or do they go to? So Vegas is, you know, very fortunate to be here in Las Vegas. Uh, you know, we have the most amount of hotel rooms in the world. <laughs> yeah. We're actually number one in the world for hotel rooms, as well as we have Airbnb still here. So depending on what patients want, we have some deals with some local uh, long stay hotels around us. You stay two days in the hospital after that. I expect you to stay at least you know the first two weeks because I want to see you for the post up okay. before you go back. After that, I let you go as long as everything's going well, which in 100 percent of the cases so far has been the case. If you want to stay longer, I'm happy to stay longer with us. If you want to stay here in Las Vegas, not a bad place to be. Lots of things to do. Uh, by two or three weeks, you can drive. I've had some patients go down to the beach in California. Um, uh, I've had patients who I've had one patient who bought a house here who was not from here. He's from Boston originally. He bought a house here so much. Uh, so. Um, you know, there's a lot, you know, a lot of stuff to do here in Vegas. It's a lot of stuff. We have friends to come visit or family to come visit. It's not the worst place to come visit Las right. Vegas. Um, and you know, we're the eighth busiest airport in the country. So we have a lot of direct flights from all over the world, uh, including everywhere, everywhere in Canada, the United States, Mexico, probably. Um, so, you know, I mean, I do expect you to save those two weeks to do the therapy with us. If you want to go home after that and, you know, you've kind of seen me at that two-week appointment, then I'll let you kind of go. And I think that is useful for patients, especially when they're putting their social lives and their jobs and that sort of stuff on hold. I think that's actually more impactful sometimes than the actual cost of the surgery. Right. I think that loss of income, that loss of what they do and who they are is very impactful. Mm -hmm. And even between looking at precise cases from the olden days where people have to stay here in Las Vegas or, you know, or even when I was in Florida, stay in Florida, um, the rate of achievement of getting the final length um, was, is, seems to be much higher with the stride than it was with the initial precise. And I think it's because we allow patients to leave. I think when you're here and you're by yourself and maybe you haven't told anyone about it because you're, you're worried about what people think and that kind of stuff, and you're here by yourself and 24 hours a day except for that hour of therapy. So 23 hours a day you're by yourself and you have no one to talk to and you're stuck in this place. And there's nothing to do. I mean, you get to six centimeters and you think, I think I'm going to stop here mostly because of you know, I, I think it's sometimes from a social perspective they stop because of the fact that they feel, I, I don't want to stay here anymore. I can't take this anymore. <laughs> uh, uh, and, I, and I feel there are a lot of patients who, you know, might have potentially felt that way. When I think it's easier when you're back in reality, going to see your parents, potentially going out with the, the significant other, um, you know, uh, seeing family and walking around. And, you know, I still have patients who feel they don't want to tell anyone and they're able to conceal it. They're able to go back to work. They're able to go back and do their job and do stuff, see their family, you know. I've had patients hide it from their wives or significant other. I don't know how they did that, but I've had them do it. So, uh, so they tell me. So, you know, I, but I think, it, I think it makes it more normal and it's easier to get to the end goal because they're back in a place, mm -hmm. a familiar place. It, it isn't strenuous from the fact that they're isolated or any of that sort of stuff. And I think that's very impactful for them getting to their final legs. Yeah, that's a really informative answer. And I think that's going to help a lot of people uh, ease that concern because I get that question all the time. Um, Dr. D, overall... Do you feel your patients who come to the Limb Plastics Institute, do you feel like, I guess on a scale of one to 10, what's their satisfaction level from the patients that you talk to uh, maybe a month or two or after con consolidation? Um, you know, so that's part of the reason I said I even started to do these procedures. Mm -hmm. Cosmetic procedures, you know, I could certainly do other things that are probably less time consuming and actually more lucrative that are not this. Um, but to be honest, the gratifications I see from patients that impact, uh, you know, there's almost very few surgeries I would say where I get that type of people. I've been invited to two weddings from my own plastic surgeons. 
And, uh, you know, and it's just, I don't know, it's just that these patients, you really change something for them. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what that, you know, you know, I don't know if it's self, you know, confidence or the realization of going through this, um, you know, but um, I, I think it's very impactful. And I think that that gratitude, that smile on their face when they get to the end result, you know, I, w- I would say that rate of uh, satisfaction is, is nearly 100%. I mean, I've not had a patient who's regretted doing this. We send out surveys once in a while for some of the data we collect for our patients about, you know, would you recommend somebody else and that sort of stuff. And all the time, that's been the answer. Yes, I would do this. The best decision of my life. I've heard that multiple times from patients uh, who, who have pursued this and gone through this procedure. So I, I, that's why I do this. I, I, w- I wouldn't do a procedure that I don't feel confident in that I myself wouldn't do that I don't think would generate good positive feelings at the end of doing it and that that's why we do what we do I mean right I mean that's what we do what, what we do uh, you know that's why you do what you do exactly. you're doing because you you had a you, you had a life-changing surgery mm-hmm. that made you this great person and you're smiling you're happy you feel so grateful for this that you've taken time out of your life yeah <laughs> at, at, at an expense because you're not getting paid me for doing this stuff and and because you're so passionent about it, you, you know, that's, that's the same as me. I mean, you know, this is, this is what I love. When I saw this 17 years ago, yeah. I knew somehow I would be connected to this. And if I'm the hand that pushes it to be, you know, something that's mainstream, something that's acceptable, something that's not something to be shamed about, something that is just a routine thing that people can do and feel better about themselves. And I think that it can be, that's truly my belief and has always been my belief. Then, you know, then I can be, you know, potentially helpful in doing that and get, getting you there. But, you know, like I said, short answer to that question is, you know, I think it's just the, just the results. I think yeah. the results are just, you know, that's why we created what we created and why we do what we do. Wow. That is so amazing. I think that was the coolest like statement that just kind of wrapped up why, you know, a surgeon does limb lengthening right there. Very, very, very cool. Um, to wrap up, Dr. D, where can anybody reach out to you who might be interested in a consultation for cosmetic limb lengthening at the Limb Plastics Institute? Uh, yeah, so the uh, easiest way and probably a very convenient way of a lot of patients reach just ways to our website, limbplastics.com, L, which is spelled L-I-M-B-P-L-A-S-T-X.com. Uh, we also have social media platforms as well, like you know, Facebook, Instagram, that sort of stuff, where some people chat us through that as well. Uh, but you can book consult straight straight through the website as well. And usually uh, within 24 hours, we'll have someone that answers you and starts to facilitate that process. Um, we offer video consultations like we're doing right here. Uh, so that so you get expectations so you don't have to waste money or time mine and yours in flying out <laughs> if potentially this might not be the procedure for you so i think it's very informative to get that out of the way uh and see what people see 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 what you know what's what's involved with this i also like when patients talk to my previous patients so mm-hmm. i always encourage my patients not all of them take take me up on it but i always encourage patients to talk to our previous patients because that's transparency mm-hmm. i want them to tell you the good and the bad yeah probably more so the bad to yeah be honest. right the good Good at you know you can watch my you know shows and <laughs> sort of stuff, but but I mean it's the bad that's the important part because you have to know what's you know the worst case scenario what what you know what, how bad how painful is it like how easy was it to go to the bathroom day or the second day and that sort of stuff so I think you really have to you know go through all that uh, but you know that's how you you know get a hold of us but easiest way is probably through the website. Okay, very cool. And I'll be sure to put the, the your handle and your website in the show notes so everybody can reach out to you who wants to do that. Uh, well, if you have any last words, um, that'd be great. Uh, yeah, so just from our perspective, I mean, we just did a, um, a documentary. Uh, it's on a really cool platform called 60 Second Docs, mm-hmm. where they connect 
documentary in the 60 seconds. So we were uh, very appreciative to be able to be featured in that. And it's going to be dropping May 1st. Okay. Uh, so, uh, so be sure to look for that. We actually featured one of our uh, plastic surgeon who actually had the procedure done and was at the end of his length in, in that uh, piece. So I think it'll be a great piece. We'll probably have it posted on our social media platforms as well. Okay. Uh, um, you know, as well as on our website eventually. Uh, you know, we've been overall lucky uh, from the media perspective. We were able to produce about 150 media publications just this year. So wow. I'm doing that. And that's with coronavirus. Uh, uh, so that's kind of slows down the last two weeks. And, you know, we've been offered, you know, a bunch of shows that will be coming up, hopefully, as well as signing with, a, a, you know, or at least conversations with a TV studio about doing a reality TV show around our patients and around our practice here at One Classic. So that may be a conversation we keep pursuing and, and that may be something potentially in the future that we look forward to. Mm, that is so cool. Great way to end. Well, everyone, that is Dr. Devin, uh, Kevin, Debbie Prashad, who is bringing cosmetic limb lengthening to light. Uh, and if you're interested in reaching out to him, I'll have the link to his website in the show notes. Um, for the Limb Plastics Institute in Las Vegas, Nevada. Dr. Debbie Prashad, thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank you so much for having me.